Our gospel reading for this Palm Sunday comes from Mark chapter 11. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. When they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as these people greeted and welcomed and celebrated King Jesus as he entered that city on this day, so we greet him and receive him as our king today. May he reign over our thoughts and our lives. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would draw closer and closer to him, help us to understand what he's communicating and what he's doing through this act this week and, and all the way through as we observe Good Friday and celebrate Easter, all of these things, please uh, cause us to rejoice in our King Jesus every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, this past January, we saw what was maybe one of the weirdest presidential inaugurations in history. Certainly in my lifetime, so much of it was dystopian and out of place and weird and uncomfortable. I'm not even sure how much you, you watched or how much you paid attention to it. I certainly didn't watch a whole lot of it, but, but what I saw was, uh, was communicating very little joy, very little of the kind of hope and promise that usually attends these things. Even, even when we disagree strongly with the, the direction of the incoming president. Even when we have significant differences with the, with the one being sworn in, typically inaugurations abound in optimism and no small amount of patriotism and unity. And, and so even if you're on the other side, you think, well, here's what we've got to work with and here's what we've got to do. And okay, well, let's, let's move forward. I, I didn't get the sense of any of that this time around. There were no, there were no crowds, there was no parade, uh, the National Guard and the barbed wire sent a very clear, stark, despairing message. Uh, so it may rank as uh, at least the, the, the least interesting uh, inauguration, maybe the most boring and bleak inauguration day in our history. But it's not the only time something weird happened on inauguration day. And certainly at other points in our history, there have been a few that were at least unusual and, and certainly interesting 
Does anybody remember Bill Clinton's inauguration parade? He, he wanted to uh, broadcast this alternative, youthful image. And so in his inauguration parade, uh, there were Elvis impersonators, and there, were, uh, there was a reggae band, and there was a precision lawn chair drill team, whatever that is. Does anybody remember the kind of circus that was the Clinton inauguration? Um, and, uh, and so there were all these weird groups instead of the usual, you know, cadets and, and uh, equestrian teams. But not even that's the weirdest or the funniest. Way, way back in the 19th century, Ulysses Grant's plan was to release hundreds of canaries at his inauguration. He thought that would be super special, except for the fact that it was one of the coldest days on record in Washington, D.C., a very windy negative 14 degrees the day of Grant's inauguration. And so the birds all froze to death. Um, he, didn't, he didn't get to release his canaries. Richard Nixon had a bird problem as well. He hated pigeons, and, and so he wanted to make sure pigeons didn't ruin his special day. Uh, and so he uh, had bird repellent sprayed all along the parade route. So Nixon's triumphal parade through the streets of Washington was attended by people waving flags and dead pigeons in the gutters and all along the, the sidewalks. Maybe the funniest story, though, comes from Andrew Jackson's inaugural party and his inaugural, uh, his inauguration day in 1829, he thought it would be delightful to host a big house party at the White House. And uh, so as you can imagine, it swelled to a boisterous 20,000 partiers in the, in, in the White House. People stood on furniture in their muddy boots. Uh, they rummaged through cabinets and rooms in the White House. They broke dishes. They spilled wine. Uh, they, they dropped food on the carpets and ground it in with their with their feet. Eventually, the servants put wash tubs of whiskey and juice out on the lawn to draw the people out of the White House, to get them out of the house so they could lock the doors and start to clean up. And it took several weeks to paint and clean and restore the White House. The staff said that the rooms and the carpets smelled like cheese months after, after the party. So we, we always tend to assume that the period of history that we occupy must be the nuttiest, craziest time in history. But, you know, if you study history, you can always find something nuttier or at least as crazy as, as what you are uh, dealing with today, something at least a, as shocking. Now the, now, the events that we remember each year on Palm Sunday are amazing in one sense. They're bewildering in another sense. Certainly some unexpected things happen as the Lord Jesus has his triumphal coronation parade into the city of Jerusalem. What, what appears on the surface to be his inauguration day, his coming as the promised Messiah to his people uh, turns into something different. It turns into something unexpected. And it's, it's full, it's multi-layered, full of meaning and symbol. And we'll uh, unpack that and look at all that today. But on the surface, as Jesus comes into the city, you see this very hopeful, optimistic, delightful event. And yet there's this deep undertone of sadness and sobriety about what is actually coming to pass. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he tells us that Jesus was weeping. The closer he got to Jerusalem, he's weeping over the city and over the faithlessness of the people of Israel. And so when he gets inside, he's not heralded as king. He gets inside the city 
And there's immediate conflict and all kinds of confrontation. So what's going on here? How, how do we process and understand this very strange inauguration parade, this coronation parade that we remember on Palm Sunday? You see, every year we turn the corner toward Good Friday and toward our celebration of Easter by first remembering this parade. This is the first step in our journey toward Easter uh, and, and the celebration of the, of the resurrection. We remember uh, this on Palm Sunday, and and we have this Sunday, and we have this uh, this this remembrance to call to mind this event, which was full of the tensions that existed in the first century. There was the hope of the people of Israel. There was the oppression and the tyranny of Rome. There was the hard-heartedness of the Jewish authorities. And there was the mission of Jesus and his disciples in the midst of all of that. And it all comes, it all comes swirling together on this, on this stage as he is praised publicly as king. And then not too long after this, he is condemned to die as a criminal outside the city. Uh, all, of, all of this starts to boil over as he comes into the city on Palm Sunday. So that, that's what makes this an important starting point. Why don't we start here as we begin that yearly cycle of reflection and rejoicing in the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So, so let's begin, let's walk through Mark's account. Reading Mark's gospel, if we were to start back at chapter one and read up to this point, we would see that Jesus is always on the move throughout Mark's gospel. Mark is uh, my favorite gospel to read. You can read it quickly. Uh, and, and Mark has this immediacy. Every time, every time you turn a corner, Mark is saying immediately Jesus does this. And then immediately in, in the old King James, it was straightway and straightway he did this. And, and Jesus is always moving in Mark's gospel efficiently and tactically from place to place, from town to town, teaching privately, speaking in mysterious parables that he deliberately speaks in code so that not everybody understands. His people, his disciples understand what he's saying, but others don't get it. Um, and they don't, they don't understand what he's talking about. He heals people. And, and then he tells them, don't say anything about this. Don't, don't tell anybody what's, what's happening here. In chapter eight, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. After the transfiguration, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to keep a lid on it, to, to not say anything about what they had just seen until after the resurrection. So whatever a good strategy is for public relations, however you build a brand, however you get your name out there, however you promote yourself, whatever that is, Jesus isn't doing any of it. In fact, he's doing the opposite of all of that. He's not seeking the spotlight. He stays out on the fringes, in the small towns and in the small villages. Now, the word gets out anyway. He can't, he can't, he doesn't stop it from getting out completely and his fame builds and the crowds grow the closer and closer he gets to Jerusalem. But he's not promoting himself because he knows that he is headed for a collision with the authorities in Jerusalem. And as soon as they find out what he's up to and what he claims to be and who he is, there is going to be a conflict. There's going to be a confrontation and he has work to do. So he's delaying that confrontation by telling people, don't say anything, keep a lid on it, keep this quiet, keep this under your hat. He's also throughout the gospel walking everywhere. 
Occasionally he gets on a boat and he crosses the Sea of Galilee. But for the most part, Jesus walks everywhere. He doesn't have a horse. He doesn't have a wagon. He doesn't have a chariot. He's always on foot. But all of this changes on Palm Sunday. Jesus now stages this grand public theatrical entrance into the city of Jerusalem. He sends his men into the city looking for a specific donkey that is tied up waiting to be taken. <clears throat> now, why didn't he get a donkey from somewhere else? Why, why didn't he already have one if he knew that he was going to need it? Why, why does he uh, not bring his own donkey? Why does he do it this way? Well, because it gives someone in the city to, uh, the, the opportunity to ask, where are you going with that donkey? Uh, what are you doing with that donkey? He wants to provoke that question. And the disciples can give the answer, the Lord has need of it. See, Jerusalem is busting at the seams right now with, uh, with, with people gathered for the Passover. People have come from all over the world to celebrate Passover this week. And so some little bit of news like Jesus, you know, Jesus, that prophet from Nazareth, that prophet from Galilee, the guy who's been uh, healing. We've, we've heard some strange stories about things he's done and things he said. Oh yeah, he's about to ride into town on a donkey. That, that news is going to travel fast and it's going to come with a great deal of anticipation and excitement. They know that what he's about to do is a demonstration of authority and power and rebellion against, uh, against Rome. It's, a, it's rebellion against uh, the, the occupying force. You see, there have been a number of uprisings and revolts. The people are used to these public protests, these displays of resistance against Rome. And so now the fact that this new so-called Messiah is about to ride into town on a donkey, it brings this whole new thrill with it. Now, now what exactly about Jesus riding a donkey is significant? Well, there's this whole cultural background behind this, connecting kings and donkeys in Israel's history. For us, donkeys are not regal. We don't think of donkeys as anything special. It's a kind of comedic, uh, you know, or you, you think of maybe Eeyore. If you think of a donkey, you see a donkey standing out in the field by himself, which is what we normally see around here. I never see like a herd of donkeys. Anybody ever see like a, uh, my wife was looking out the car window the other day. There's a donkey. Well, he's all by himself. So he's always lonely and he's not very regal and he's not very happy at least. But that's not the, uh, specifically the way that, that, that donkeys were seen in um, Israel's history. Israel's kings historically ride donkeys because God explicitly prohibited them from multiplying horses. You see, the Gentile nations, they build these massive cavalries. They have horses and chariots, but Israel doesn't need that because Yahweh fights their battles for them. So God forbade them from multiplying horses and out of obedience, their kings ride donkeys. The first time we see King Saul, what's he doing? He's looking for his father's donkeys. David starts, riding, uh, starts off as a young man riding a donkey. Later in life, he's riding a mule. See, we're halfway to horses at that point. We're, we're almost there. We're halfway to horses with mules. Solomon rides his father's mule into Jerusalem at his anointing and at his coronation. Solomon starts off on a mule 
And before long, he's got 40,000 horses. He starts multiplying horses and chariots. And Solomon doesn't stop there. He multiplies gold and he multiplies wives and he does everything that God prohibited and he sets up his kingdom to be ripped apart and uh, there's all this chaos and calamity that, that follows. But faithful kings ride donkeys in Israel. So Jesus is the obedient king. Jesus is the faithful son. He's the king in submission to Yahweh. So when he gets close to Jerusalem, he asks specifically for a donkey. Now, everybody's going to see this and everybody's going to know exactly what's happening here. At least what he's projecting. At least the, the, the symbol that he's placarding in front of, of Jerusalem. They all know their Bibles. They know that the true king rides a donkey. And then remember Zechariah 9, the prophet Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you are raised in Israel, you know the prophet Zechariah just as well as you know the story of the flood and you know the story of the Garden of Eden and you know Psalm 23. They would have, have just as clearly remembered and known the prophecy of Zechariah and they would know what's happening when Jesus gets a donkey. So when the, when the disciples go in the city and they take a donkey and somebody says, where are you going with that donkey? Say, the Lord has need of it. Then they start whispering and say, oh, Jesus is getting a donkey. We know what's happening now. Uh, by the way, if you're reading along with Mark's gospel, I'm in the New King James, uh, the word is translated colt. The word behind that is young donkey. In fact, it's even clearer in Matthew's gospel that indeed it is, it is a young donkey, uh, just in case you had a question about that. So Jesus obtains a donkey and they know what's happening. Oh, one, one more side note, one more footnote. When, when we get to Revelation, and by the way, we are getting back to Revelation one of these days. We're, we're going to get back there. We're going to finish it. I promise. Uh, just after Easter, probably. We get, over to, we get over to Revelation, though, and you remember that Jesus conquers the world riding a white horse. Jesus, the ascended, enthroned second Adam, Jesus is the mature, complete resurrection man who is not at all tempted by worldly strength. He is strength and power and might and his army rides horses. So it seems that there's a maturation here. We don't ride donkeys forever, even metaphorical donkeys. We eventually get to ride horses into battle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. Jesus rides a donkey here, uh, but after the resurrection, he gets a war horse. And so what is, what is happening here with Jesus uh, a command, commandeering a donkey to ride into the city? Well, it's very obvious. He is the son of David. He is going to be the greater David. At least that's what he's displaying. And, and that's what they sing. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. This donkey, as Jesus rides it and gets closer to the city, is made into a throne for Jesus. And this is signified when the disciples place their cloaks on the donkey and then they lay their coats on the road. Our clothes represent us. You may think that, oh, it doesn't really matter what I wear, and what I just wear what I want to be comfortable, and it just doesn't broadcast anything, it doesn't exhibit anything. Well, you're wrong. And whether you want to believe it or not, your clothes say something about who you are and what you do. Your clothes represent you. And we know this in every other area of life. You know, doctors wear scrubs, judges wear a black robe, police officers wear a uniform. Your clothes represent you. And when you take off your cloak 
and you put it under someone else, you're saying he is over, over me. So the people come from the town and they come out and they put their clothes on the ground. And as Jesus rides over the cloaks, they're saying he's riding over us. He's exalted above us. He is subduing us. But there's something else going on here as well. Uh, they did the same thing with King Jehu all the way back in 2 Kings 9. Many, many, many years before this, Jehu was a commander in God's army when God uh, uh, directed Elisha, the prophet Elisha, to anoint Jehu as king in order to oppose wicked, idolatrous King Ahab. You know enough about Ahab to know that he was uh, a very wicked, tyrannical man. He was, a, uh, he was an idolater. And, and so Elisha anointed Jehu, the commander of God's army, to be a divine avenger against the house of Ahab. And when Jehu was anointed king, all the men took off their garments, they all took off their robes and cloaks, and they made a carpet on the ground all the way up the steps of Jehu's house. And then they blew trumpets when Jehu got to the top of the stairs, and they said, Jehu is king, Jehu is king. Now, recalling that here, Israel comes out to greet their new king, the new divine avenger against the house of wicked, idolatrous Herod and Caesar. We don't, have a, we don't have an Ahab problem anymore. We've got a Herod problem. We've got a Caesar problem. And now we have our greater Jehu who's going to bring his attack. He's going to bring his vengeance against the wicked, idolatrous tyrant. So Jesus is the greater Jehu, they say, by throwing their cloaks on the ground. Well, word is spreading about Jesus's entry into the city and now the people are pouring out of the city to come meet him. Triumphal parades, processions were a staple in the ancient world. So anytime there's a great military victory or there was some heroic feat and the champion was coming into the city, all the populace, everybody goes out to meet them and they dance and they sing and they bring them back into the city in this kind of impromptu parade. You know how we have, have ticker tape parades for astronauts or people who go do really dangerous, heroic things, or uh, even football teams get, get ticker tape parades. You come back, you're the victor, and now you get, you get this big parade. Well, this is kind of what uh, they were doing uh, back then as well. They go out and meet the hero, and they bring him into the city with, with dancing and singing. The people are waving foliage. They're waving palm branches just as they did in the days of the Maccabees. Now, the, the, the story of the Maccabees comes between, it comes in that intertestamental period. It comes between Malachi and Matthew, and it's not in the inspired text of Scripture, but it is a historical event that, um, that, that was still looming large in the minds of the people who, who are waving these palm branches. Back in the days of the Maccabees, after they had purified the temple, they took the branches from their booths. See, it was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they take the branches from their booths, from their tabernacles that they erected, and they sang and danced and rejoiced around the city, waving their palm branches. The palm branch was a national symbol. It was a clear reminder of the era of the Maccabees, and it became their, their flag. It became their symbol of their, their, their nationality. So as they wave these branches, the expectation of some in the crowd is that Jesus would begin again the revolutionary effort that was started by the Maccabees, that, that, that he's going to renew the uh, uh, revolution against Rome. 
uh, they see Jesus as the new Judas Maccabeus. And they sing, they sing Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is from that section of Psalms that was written after the Babylonian exile during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. It references the struggles of God's people to build a temple even surrounded by their enemies. The, the people pick up that psalm deliberately. They sing this psalm now to praise the one who will establish proper worship at the temple in a land surrounded by enemies. Jesus is the temple builder. Jesus is the architect of a new city, which makes him the greater Ezra and Nehemiah. You see, all of this is layered together. He is the greater David. He is the greater Jehu. He is the greater Judas Maccabeus. He's the greater Ezra, the greater Nehemiah. And all of this is heaped up now on him as he comes into the city. But for all of this public spectacle, for all of this buildup, comparatively, what happens next is kind of underwhelming. Um, when he gets inside the city, we expect that there's going to be a coronation. We expect that there's going to be a vow. There's going to be an oath. There's going to be a, a rally, some kind of speech, an anointing, some kind of ceremony. Uh, there's going to be some public recognition that he is the true king and he is finally going to get the honor and the glory and he is going to get the worship that he deserves. But instead, Jesus goes into the temple. He looks around and he goes back outside the city to spend the night with some friends in Bethany. It all, all of this parade, it just kind of ends with a thud. Nothing happens. His coronation is coming, yes, but it's coming in a way that no one is quite ready for. It's going to come through trial and beating and crucifixion and death. That's how he's going to be crowned. And over the next few days, the tide starts to turn. The, the atmosphere in the city begins to turn against him. He comes back to the city and he enacts a, a public prophetic judgment against the temple system. He, he turns over the table of the money changers. If we were to keep reading Mark chapter 11, that's when he in, interrupts that corrupt system of commerce that has emerged around the temple. And as he does that, that's just a precursor of the greater judgment yet to come. The next time he comes back into the city, he gets all kinds of questions from those in authority. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders all interrogate him. They grill him and say, on what authority do you say these things? Who, who, who put you up to this? Who gives you the right to do the things that you do and say the things that you say? But he doesn't give them the answer that they're looking for. And so the wheels of conspiracy start turning against him and the events start congealing, which lead to his arrest. The plot to destroy him begins to play out after this. And in the end, we see that all of the symbolic statements that he makes on this triumphal entry into the city, all these, all these statements are true, but they're true in bigger ways than anybody could comprehend. Yes, he's the greater David, but he's going to sit on an eternal throne, not a temporal throne. He is the greater Jehu, but he doesn't just avenge God's people against one uh, idolatrous tyrant, but against all tyrants, all oppressors, all kings and rulers of the earth must kiss the sun lest he be angry, Psalm 2. He's the greater Judas Maccabeus. He doesn't simply oppose the dominion of an occupying empire. He defeats the dominion of darkness. He defeats sin and the grave and death itself. 
He is the greater Ezra and Nehemiah who builds the new Jerusalem, who builds the new and living temple, the church, and will enter it as the new great high priest. So, so all of these things are true, but are true in ways that are bigger than anybody could comprehend or see on this day. And he is coming into the city as a mighty warrior king. But this is as much an invasion as it is a victory parade. He's coming to conquer Jerusalem, to conquer the people, to subdue it, and to bring it under his rule. All of these things that we see here point to who Jesus is and, and point to what he is about to accomplish in such a way that it's undeniable. that He's not simply the king of a tiny Middle Eastern country about the size of Vermont, which is about what you know Judea, is, uh, Israel was. Uh, this is just a foretaste. What he what he's showing us here is a foretaste that through his obedience to the law of his father, through his anointing, uh, uh, through his atoning sacrificial death, through his resurrection from the grave, his ascension over all creation, he becomes king of everything. He becomes king of everything all the time and he never stops being king. And there's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. There's nothing that doesn't matter to him. And all of his work is kingly work. He's about to show us this is what a true king does and this is how a king behaves. If you want rule and glory and authority and power, this is how you get it. He is about to show us. So one reason, one reason that we get this event and we study this event every year and we reflect on it before we get to the arrest and the trial and the, the crucifixion. Before we get there, we fix this in our minds. We fix this in our hearts that he is the anointed king and nothing that is about to happen over the next week is outside of his control. Nothing diminishes his glory. His reign is never up for grabs. It's never on the table. And no matter what happens in this next week, in the end, it is Jesus who will reign as king and Lord of all the earth. And so in light of this, I want to stop then and just reflect for the last few minutes. I want to reflect, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is king? If I ask you, is Jesus king? You would nod and say, yeah, Jesus is king. What does that mean? What does it mean to you that Jesus is king? Let's, let's reflect on that because it, it may be hard for us to relate to kingship because we're kind of suspicious of kings. I, I certainly am. Why would you invest all of that authority and all of that, that, that power in one fallible person? We have presidents and we have governors who even at their worst are only around for a few years. We can, we can get by for a few years until we get another one and we get somebody else. So understand, uh, understanding that Jesus is king, we have to reorient our mind around what a king is and what a king does. So I appreciate the Westminster Shorter Catechism's question and answer on this. Uh, question 26. Listen to this closely. How does Christ execute the office of a king? The answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. I want to take those one at a time and look at those very quickly, but, but, but sincerely. How is Jesus executing the office of a king? By subduing us to himself, 
in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. First, Jesus executes his office as king by subduing us to himself. He must subdue us. He must bring us under his reign because we are born in a state of rebellion. We are by nature traitors and mutineers and insurgents against his kingdom. So before anything happens, he's first got to conquer us and then continue to rehabilitate us, to bring us more and more under his law. And so when I say Jesus is my king, this is what I mean first, I say he has conquered me. I have, by his spirit, surrendered to him. And if that's not true of you, if you can't say Jesus is king because he has not conquered you, he has not subdued you, you have not submitted to him as king, what are you waiting for? Is there, is there some other king out there that you'd rather serve? Is there somebody else who's got a better plan? What are, what are you interested in? What do you, who, who you got in mind? Who, who do you think is going to win? Who, who do you think is going to stand? Who, who has an answer for your guilt? Who has an answer for the grave? Who, who, who else is, is there? I'll, I'll wait. Anybody? You got any nominations? No nominations from the floor? We still have a congregational meeting. Who's king? I nominate Jesus. So moved, right? Uh, to say Jesus is king is to say that he has conquered me. He rules and has subdued me. He has conquered me completely. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus executes his office as king in ruling and defending us. So having subdued us, he rules us, which means that I am governed by the Lord Jesus. I'm not governed by my own preferences. I'm governed by his law. I'm not governed by what I think. I don't create my own philosophy about life, my own philosophy about the world, my own very intricate set of moral code that I somehow put together and then subject myself to. I do not submit to anything but his principles, not my emotions, not my thoughts, his principles. He defines reality. He says what is up and what is down, what is good and what is bad, what is helpful and what is destructive. And we conform to it. We don't get to make objections or amendments. We submit to it. We confess that we are no longer our own. We belong to him in both body and soul. We belong to him. And we acknowledge that every failure to conform to his rule is an act of rebellion against our king. It's not a small thing to betray your king because you have a real relationship with him. To betray him is a, is a breach of trust. It's a, it's a breach of relationship, which, which can be mended, which must be mended if you're to have life and joy and peace. But you see, to say Jesus is king is not to say that Jesus is king of fairyland. Jesus is king of an hour on Sunday morning. Jesus is king of, of church people. It's to say that Jesus is king of everything and everything in my life and my whole life. So we welcome his rule over our lives and over our tongues and over our thoughts and over our deeds and our finances and our education and our work in the world and over our relationships and our hopes and our dreams and desires. He rules all of these and we're happy for him to do it because he has the way of life. He has, the, he has the only way that works. He has the only way that brings life and blessing. And nothing that pleases him is ever going to bring us to eternal ruin. He is never going to lead us somewhere and abandon us. So he rules us and he defends us. The king's job is to defend his subjects. I have a duty to him to obey him. 
but he has made a commitment to me to defend me. He is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my strength in whom I will trust. He is my buckler, the horn of my salvation, and my high tower, saith the, sol, uh, the, the, the psalmist. There is nothing in the entire cosmos that is bigger than he is. There is nothing in the entire cosmos that is stronger than he, that is richer, that has more stamina or more cunning or more wit or more foresight. He cannot be outsmarted, outdueled, outspent, outlasted, or outfought. No one fights harder than Jesus fights for his bride. All the power in heaven and earth is in his hand, and he uses that power to subdue and rule and defend his people. So he's never abandoned me. He's never left me holding the bag. He's never left me in the lurch. I've never ended up worse off by obeying Jesus. If you ever had to obey Jesus or do your own thing. Well, do your own thing, see how that turns out. Pretty bad, wasn't it? Do it Jesus' way. Do the right, do what, do what God says. You, you never end up worse off. He has blessed me every single time I have followed and obey him way more than I could even think or dream. And so with that, you see, with a king like that, you, don't, you stop caring about what people say about you. You stop caring about what a wicked person does to you or how disappointed they are in you or how ashamed or how appalled they are of you. Uh, it, doesn't, it, just, it doesn't matter because Jesus is my king. He's my sure defense. In him, I will trust. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, as Job says. So he subdues me, and then he rules over me and defends me. And then the third thing Jesus does to execute his office as king is to restrain and conquer all his and our enemies. Jesus' enemies and my enemies are the same enemies. If I have different enemies from Jesus, or if the enemies of Jesus are my friends, I'm in big trouble. I've got a problem. You need to figure out what side of the ball you're on. You need to figure out, you need to figure out what uniform you're wearing, whose sticker is on your helmet, what jersey are you wearing. Make sure that your enemies are, are, are the enemies of Jesus, that the enemies of Jesus are your enemies. Who are they? Who, who, what are you talking about? We got enemies? I thought we just, we're just happy in love with everybody. It's just Woodstock all the time. We're just in love. We got two kinds of enemies. You've got earthly enemies and you have spiritual enemies. Earthly enemies are anyone who opposes the church, who persecute the people of God, who threaten, who scoffs, who, who blasphemes, who mocks and ridicules and profanes the name of Jesus or the word of God. Those are your earthly enemies. Now you're to love them, you're to pray for them, but they are in fact your enemies. They oppose the cross of Christ, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, and they seek to destroy you. And so Jesus has promised as our king to subdue them. He subdues our enemies. Those are your earthly enemies. And by the way, your earthly enemies aren't funny they aren't entertaining. Why do we put up with so much from people who hate us? Why do we give them our money? Why do we laugh at their jokes? Why do we enjoy their entertainment? They hate you. What are you doing? They hate you. They're not entertaining. And I'm kind of tired of giving my money to people who hate me. I'm trying to find out ways I don't give my money to people who hate me. So those are your physical enemies. Our spiritual enemies are sin and death and Satan 
and his minions. So we're talking about spiritual forces. Those are your spiritual enemies. And Jesus, as our king, opposes all of them. He fights against them with the word of his mouth. He restrains their evil by his Holy Spirit. In his death, he cancels the sting of death. In his resurrection, he robs the grave of victory. By his grace, he cancels guilt. He destroys the dominion of Satan by punishing evil, by removing the wicked, by continually pouring out his mercy on the earth, by calling men to repentance, by killing them with the sword of his spirit, by mortifying their sinful flesh and raising them to new life. One of the chief ways he conquers evil is to conquer it the same way he conquers us. That is by subduing them and by converting sinners to his army to his people. So this is what we're saying when we say Jesus is king. And this is what we're celebrating when we celebrate with those in faith who were rejoicing in Jesus as their king. This is what we're saying. We're saying what 1 Corinthians 15 says, that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. You understand that, right? He is putting all of his enemies under his feet. Nothing stands against him and wins. There is nothing in all the world that's neutral. It either exists to serve Jesus as king or it's fit for destruction. There's nothing in between. You don't get to stand on the sidelines. You're on one side or the other. Either this institution, this church, this nation, this political party, this school, this company, this outfit, either it proclaims the kingship of Jesus or it is set for destruction. It has an expiration date. It's going away. It either, it either rejoices in Jesus as king or it's fit for destruction. Many of the people who greeted Jesus that day were starting to figure it out. Many of them started thinking this is a good idea. Our temporal king is here. Finally, we get out from under Rome and Herod and all this mess. But later they're offended by him. And they're offended by his claims when they hear the rest of the story. Some of these people are going to be hanging around the crowd when they say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. For us, however, we have the benefit of perspective. And it's imperative that we not be fuzzy on any of this, but that we be absolutely crystal clear on who Jesus is and what it means to greet him as king. We, we sing this phrase every single Lord's Day. They sang, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing that every, every Lord's Day. After we uh, confess our sins, our sins are forgiven, we process into the presence of God. We join to welcome him as king. And so in a certain way, every Sunday is Palm Sunday. Every Sunday, we welcome our victorious king and his rule and his reign over us to subdue us. And so the only sane thing to do is to submit to his absolute rule. What rogue state of your life do you have that you're holding out hope that maybe, maybe he won't conquer this? Not, not yet. I'm enjoying this autonomy. I'm enjoying this little rebellion, this little outpost of, of brigands and thieves and, and, and rebels and insurgents. I'm enjoying this little part of my life. What territory do you have your flag planted in that you say, everything else belongs to Jesus, but this, I'm not quite ready. He can't have this, not yet. What do you believe is neutral territory? What is a, what is a DMZ, a demilitarized zone that, 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 that Jesus, you think it doesn't, he doesn't care about and, and it doesn't belong to him and he has no rights to? Where, where is that? Let me tell you. 
You, you got really one choice. You take your flag out of the ground, you lay down your weapons, and you, you wave the white flag and submit to this king joyfully. That is the only way to have life and blessing and joy and peace and rest and freedom from shame and freedom from guilt is to put down your defensives and submit to this king to sing with the prophet. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. Submit to him as king. And then you get to reign with him and you, you get to have peace and joy and blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this king who comes to us just as he came into Jerusalem. We receive him gladly as our king. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to submit to him more and more as we worship and serve him. And we pray that our lives would be pleasing to him in all things. We ask you for the strength and this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.